If you got a Bible, go to Acts chapter one. We're kicking off Acts today, and today's gonna be a bit of overview. So before we start this thing, I just wanna say a couple of things that really matter for the book of Acts. First of all, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is a great time to jump into community with questions about who Jesus is, because Acts will show you what it looks like to follow Jesus on mission. And here's why that's such a big deal. Jesus didn't just save you. He didn't just save you so that you would one day go to heaven. And that's beautiful. That's part of it. But Jesus also, in his grace, he adds us to this thing called the mission of God. And the book of Acts is really about God's mission that God's been carrying out throughout history to do something really beautiful that would be a blessing to all nations of planet earth. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, the invitation of Christ is to the Father through faith in the Son, that his life and his death and his resurrection in your place has power to forgive you and change you. But it's also an invitation to actually follow Jesus with your life on mission. Now, I'll say the same thing to Christians. We, we live in this really toxic moment in the West where a lot of churches are preaching this weird message that's not historic and it's not biblical. It's this weird message that Jesus is just a means to the end that you want. So if you love Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you worship Jesus, Jesus is gonna get you all the things you need to be happy. So come and receive Jesus, follow Jesus, because then Jesus will guarantee that you get the marriage that you always wanted or he'll get you the job that you always wanted, or you'll always get healed, or your kids will grow up and never go through rebellion. And the problem with that is that that's not the promise of scripture. The promise of scripture is that Jesus isn't a means to the end. He's the end. He's the end. He's the preeminent one. He is the very reason why you have breath in your lungs. And being a follower of Jesus means that you don't get to compartmentalize your life and say, well, Jesus gets Sunday and the rest of the week is me pursuing my dreams and my kingdom. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is gonna ruthlessly pursue all of your life. And what that means is that there's not two classes of Christians. There's not the varsity Christians that are like the special forces guys that jump out of airplanes and do all kinds of missions overseas to follow Jesus. And then there's the regular Christians that should show up once a week and don't really care about the mission of God. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary. And that may not mean that you ever moved to China or Pakistan or Bangladesh, but God has sovereignly placed you in your job or on your campus. He's put you in your neighborhood. And your job as a follower of Jesus is to follow Jesus, not just into eternity, that's beautiful, but it's to follow Jesus between Sundays to see his kingdom advance so that more people would know him. You're not to waste your talent. You're not to waste your life. And so the book of Acts is a beautiful moment where in this consumeristic Western culture where we've kind of reduced conversion to, hey, add Jesus to all your other gods and just sign this card and we'll guarantee that you're in whether or not you ever go through the, t- the trials of suffering and still trust Jesus. Um, this is a beautiful moment for us to come back and take a look at historic Christianity. This is a snapshot of what it looks like when the church follows Jesus. This is a snapshot of what it looks like when people follow Jesus. And, and so, With that in mind, let me give you just a little bit of background that'll help you throughout the next few weeks. The book of Acts has two authors like every one of the 66 books of scripture. The two authors are always human and divine. And so the book of Acts is no different. It has a human author and it has a divine author. The divine author is God, the Holy Spirit, who inspired scripture and who wrote this book through human authors. The human author is a guy named Luke. 
And Luke is a really interesting combination. Luke is a medical doctor and a historian. And in addition to being a medical doctor and a historian, Luke was a traveling companion of a guy named Paul, who is one of the most significant apostles in the history of the church. And so what Luke does is he writes a two-volume work, two books that are really about one big idea. And those two books that Luke wrote were called Luke, which is his gospel, and Acts. And what he writes in Luke is, if you will, the prequel of the book of Acts. So Luke takes careful attention to interview eyewitnesses, to, to gather the facts, to think like a historian, to make sure that he's not leaving out significant details. And as he does that, he researches, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the gospel of Luke covers the birth of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. It culminates in Jesus's bloody death for our sins. And then Luke ends his first book, the gospel of Luke, with the resurrection of Jesus and with Jesus taking 40 days to talk about this thing called the kingdom of God with his friends. And at the end of those 40 days, something that seems at first really tragic happens. Jesus who raised the dead and who healed the sick and who died in our place for our sins, Jesus ascends into heaven and it seems as if he's leaving his disciples. Now, At first read, this is really bad news for his mission because his disciples were pretty much incompetent throughout Luke at everything. They're full of doubt and unbelief and confusion and competition and pride and arrogance. And now Jesus is ascending into heaven and he's gonna send them into all the nations with the good news of who he is. And this just seems like a terrible plan. Like, Jesus, why are you leaving? You need to stay here because yeah, some people in Jerusalem heard about you, but what about Africa? Right? What about Asia? What about the rest of the ancient world? Now, here's what Luke does. It's really beautiful. He ends his gospel of Luke with Jesus's ascension. And then he picks up with this book called Acts. And Acts has been called a lot of things by different Christians. Acts has been called the Acts of the Apostles. You might've heard that. Acts has been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Some people have said that it's the Acts of the church. And all those things are true because the book of Acts talks about these guys who were apostles, and they led and planted churches. The book of Acts talks a lot about the Holy Spirit, who's God, the third person of the Trinity, who Jesus sends. And and the book of Acts talks a lot about the church, how the church lives and how the church loves and what the church does to serve their city and plant more churches. But here's the big idea of the book of Acts. It is the acts of the apostles and the acts of the spirit and the acts of the church, first and foremost, because the book of Acts are the continuing works of Jesus. It's this beautiful picture of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father in the place of all authority, the name above every name, who's been glorified and resurrected, who's called the King of all kings. And the book of Acts shows us how Jesus doesn't end his ministry and mission with his ascension, but he actually intensifies it. He doubles down on it. He expands it by sending his spirit to the church. And so the book of Acts is about Jesus working in history. Jesus in the book of Acts is fulfilling scripture and sending the Holy Spirit and making converts and Jesus is planting churches and Jesus is saving the lost and Jesus heals some sick people and Jesus is there while some of his people get persecuted and even killed. So Luke sums up this idea that it's the continuing work of Jesus in the first verse of Acts chapter one. He says this, 
In the first book, O Theophilus, now there's debate about who Theophilus is. It literally means lover of God. And some historians think that Theophilus was a disciple that Luke was writing these books to help disciple. And some people think that that was just a tag name for all lovers of God. Uh, At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because this is inspired scripture for all of our training and building up in Christ. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's Luke about? It's about all that Jesus started. It's about this movement that comes out of his life and his death and his resurrection. It's what he began to do and teach. Verse two, until the day he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. And so what's the book of Acts about? Why does this matter? Well, the book of Acts is gonna help you see more clearly who Jesus is. And it's gonna help you see more clearly how Jesus is not an absentee landlord. Jesus is not on vacation. Jesus is not checked out. Jesus from the place of authority and glory is working in history to do what Acts is really clear about to expand and advance his kingdom on planet earth. What Acts starts with and what Acts ends with, chapter one, chapter 28, is teaching about the kingdom. Let me show you just a couple of examples. In Acts chapter one, Jesus appears physically. He's not a ghost. He's not a disembodied spirit. He's got this glorified body. He eats with his friends. And for 40 days, he teaches them. And here's what it says in verse three of Acts one. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and doing what? This is the participation part. He's speaking to them. Oh, that was terrible. That was, I regret asking you to do that. <laughs> and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so Jesus in this 40 day crazy period, post-resurrection, pre-ascension, he's talking to his disciples, who was a really, really small ragtag group of people. He's talking to them about the kingdom of God. Now, let me show you the end of Acts. Acts chapter 28, verse 30 This is the apostle Paul, he's in Rome. And here's what it says. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So here's what we have in the book of Acts. And we're gonna walk through this thing on and off for the next year or so. But here's what you have. Chapter one of Acts, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. Chapter 28 of Acts, Paul is teaching about the kingdom of God. And between chapter one and chapter 28, there are 30 years of King Jesus advancing his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel and through the demonstration of his love through the hands and feet of his church. 30 years. And in those 30 years, it gets really crazy. It starts in Jerusalem as this little ragtag movement in chapter one. And by the time 30 years go by, we're at chapter 28. And now in the very heart of the Gentile world, Rome itself, the belly of the beast, the apostle Paul is teaching the kingdom of God. Jesus is advancing his kingdom as a king and he's working in history as a king. And though his kingdom has yet to be fully consummated when he returns and death is done away with, he is advancing and moving in the midst of opposition and oppression. And so what I'd like to do today 
is to give you a sense of how his kingdom works inside of us as individuals and how his kingdom works through us as missionaries and through churches. I want to talk about the fact that King Jesus and his kingdom advances in the midst of opposition. One of the big ideas of Acts is that Jesus has all authority. He's got all power, but Jesus actually works in the midst of a world where his enemies oppose the good news of his gospel, resist it, and war against it. And yet with all the resistance in Acts, with all of the opposition in Acts to King Jesus and his kingdom, nothing can stop the advance of his word and his gospel. And so what I'm gonna do for the next couple of minutes, um, whether you find it compelling or not, it matters. What I'm gonna do for the next couple of minutes is I wanna give you a bunch of examples, chapter by chapter, of opposition to King Jesus and his kingdom and how in the midst of that opposition, Jesus still advances his kingdom through his church. So let's start with the cross. That's a great place to begin. The ultimate act of opposition to Jesus is his arrest and his betrayal, his torture and his crucifixion. But far from that opposition resulting in hopelessness and despair, it was actually God's predetermined plan that Christ would die in our place for, his, for our sins and that he would rise again from the dead. And so the cross, the ultimate act of horror becomes the ultimate act of redeeming grace and love where Jesus pays for our crimes against God. So that opposition results in redemption and in healing. And then it continues in Acts. What we're gonna find is this pattern, opposition and advance, opposition and advance, opposition and advance again and again and again. Starts in Acts chapter two because Jesus is one of the great signs that he's the king and he's reigning. Jesus sends the promise of the father This is the prophetic dream that all of these prophets had written about. He sends God, the Holy Spirit, to not just influence believers from the outside in, but to fill believers from the inside out with power so that they can be Jesus's witnesses. And so it's a beautiful moment, but instead of receiving that as great news, the people in the city of Jerusalem start mocking these Christians. They make fun of them and they say, you guys are drunk. It's early morning and you guys are trashed because you guys seem really off. And in the midst of that mockery and opposition, here's what happens. Peter stands up to preach and the gospel advances and 3,000 people are saved in one day. Then we get to Acts chapter four and Peter and John are walking to the temple. They're gonna go to the temple and pray. And there's this blind homeless man, destitute, in poverty, suffering, And they see him and he asks for alms and Peter has this classic line. He says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And Jesus does this miracle and heals this beggar. And all of a sudden, everybody starts buzzing about it, wanting to know what happened and how is it that this man who was lame from birth is walking and leaping and praising God. And that results in crazy opposition. The leaders of the temple come against John and they come against Peter and they forbid them from talking in the name of Jesus. And it seems like, well, maybe just maybe this movement is going to be resisted and crushed by these leaders. And instead in the same chapter, 4,000 more people meet Jesus. So Acts 2, opposition and mockery, 3,000 people meet Jesus. Acts 4, opposition and mockery, 4,000 people meet Jesus. 
And then in Acts chapter five, we have a different kind of opposition to the church. And sometimes the church is opposed from outside by the kingdom of darkness and by persecution, but often the church is opposed from the inside because of our sin and rebellion. And what happens in Acts chapter five is that there's two people that profess to be followers of Jesus who actually lie to God, the Holy Spirit. Their names are Ananias and his wife. And Ananias and his wife come up with this scheme to get credit and glory for themselves while pretending to be really generous and charitable. So they sell a property. They say that they're giving all of the proceeds. And instead they hold the proceeds back and they lie to God, the Holy Spirit. And in a really shocking moment, especially if you were like me and heard Bible teachers say that God, the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, God, the Holy Spirit, far from being a gentleman, he kills these two. Like they drop dead in front of these Christians, drop dead. Now their opposition and corruption, instead of spreading to the whole church, results in all of the believers realizing that the fear of God is something we should probably take seriously. I don't know about you, but it would probably change the way that we repent and worship if God, the Holy Spirit just dropped the smack down on a couple of us and killed those that were lying to him. That's exactly what happens in this text. Fear of God spreads, awe of God spreads, repentance spreads, the growth of the church continues. Then in Acts chapter six, we have a different kind of internal problem in the church. And this is just the problem that growth brings and mission brings. In Acts six, tons of people are meeting Jesus. The church is growing. People are breaking bread together house to house but it's becoming extremely disorganized. Um, Instead of having leaders that know how to do spreadsheets and plan, it's like these apostles are just called to preach the gospel and pray and be on mission. And, And so the church is super disorganized. And what starts to happen in the disorganization is the disorganization opens the door for subtle and sinful racism to take place in the church. And what starts to happen is these Hellenistic widows, these were Jewish converts that were somehow related to Greek culture. They start getting neglected in the care of widows. And instead of them getting the portions that the church would set aside for their food and for their care, all of a sudden the Jewish ladies were being cared for and the Hellenistics were being ignored and belittled. And so what happens in this moment, instead of this being the end of the church, instead of the church imploding and going away in opposition, God, the Holy Spirit leads the apostles to lay hands on deacons. And these deacons are leaders in the church that lead by organizational serving. These deacons start caring for the widows and overseeing the practical details in the life of the church. Well, then time goes on and Acts chapter seven and Acts chapter eight get really dark and really intense. In Acts chapter seven, we're introduced to this man named Stephen, who was one of those deacons and who loved Jesus and who was a great preacher of the gospel. And one day he's opposed by these Jewish leaders and he begins to tell about the mission of God starting in the Old Testament and leading towards the crucifixion of Jesus. And at the climax of his sermon, the message is basically this, you killed Jesus, Jesus is God's son, repent. And instead of repenting, these leaders pick up stones and they literally bash Stephen's brains in. Now, while they're bashing his brains in, there's this young man, prideful, ambitious, educated guy named Saul. And Saul is standing there. And so that these men could kill Stephen with rocks, he collects and holds their coats for them. 
And he gives hearty approval to this murder. And this Saul is so fueled by the violence and by the blood of this Christian that he starts persecuting Christians all over the place. In fact, it says that he ravages the church. He arrests people. He breaks up families. He throws people in jail. And it seems like maybe this movement's gonna end before it's even started. Well, in the midst of that opposition, here's what happens. The gospel spreads to a place called Samaria. Jews hated Samarians, Samaritans. And as the Jews had to flee from persecution, they went to the region of Samaria. And here's what happens. Samarians start hearing about Jesus and getting saved. And then there's this guy named Philip and God, the Holy Spirit leads him to have this crazy encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch. And this Ethiopian eunuch is in a chariot and he's reading the book of Isaiah, which is this beautiful prophecy about Jesus that was written hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And Philip rolls up on this chariot and he says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch's like, I have no idea. I need somebody to help me. Philip climbs into the chariot and preaches to the eunuch Jesus from the book of Isaiah. The eunuch meets Jesus, is baptized, and now all of a sudden... The church has a seed planted in Africa that takes root and grows. And then we have many people who are involved in the occult. These are people that are worshiping dark powers and involved in magic and all kinds of rituals. They start meeting Jesus and they start throwing away all their books of witchcraft. So that persecution, that murder, that ravaging of the church doesn't end Jesus's advance. It actually fuels his advance and more people meet Jesus. Then in Acts chapter nine, and if you're wondering, are we gonna do this for the whole book? We are. Um, In Acts chapter nine, this guy named Saul that hates Christians meets Jesus on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. Jesus saves Saul. Saul is added to the church, but this leads to Saul who persecuted Christians being persecuted greatly. And in chapter nine, He's persecuted by Jews. And in chapter nine, he's persecuted by Hellenists. So both Jews and Greeks are opposed to this man who's now named Paul, who's preaching Jesus. What's the result of that? Does the church stop? Let me read you one verse, Acts 9, verse 31. So in light of the opposition, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. See, our mission as a church to multiply gospel communities that love God, love people and push back darkness is not something that we just whiteboarded out because we think it's a good idea. It's the book of Acts. It's that no matter what opposes the mission of Jesus, Jesus still advances his church to be multiplied in places where disciples have not been made. In Acts chapter 11, quickly, persecution scatters disciples. And the result is the first multicultural church where Gentiles are being saved in droves. It's in the city of Antioch. (laughs) And this multicultural church becomes the first church where disciples are called Christians. In Acts chapter 12, tragedy strikes and James, the brother of John, is murdered by an evil king named Herod. Peter is arrested And then in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas go to Antioch in Pisidia and they're persecuted and driven out. What's the result of all of this opposition? The scripture says that Gentiles rejoiced in Jesus 
and as many who were appointed to eternal life were saved. And then in Acts 14, people try to stone Paul in Iconium and Paul is stoned in Lystra. So he narrowly escapes getting his brains bashed in in Iconium to go to Lystra and in Lystra he is stoned. But instead of dying, he gets up, goes back into the city, continues preaching the gospel and healings and conversions happen. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas flee from Lystra, preach in Derby, and make many disciples. In Acts 15, the circumcision party, which was this group of early Christians that taught that you're saved by Jesus and the law. So if you want to be a Christian, you have to put your faith in Jesus and you have to get circumcised and you have to convert to be a Jew and you have to keep the dietary restrictions and the festivals. And these early Judaizers or the circumcision party starts stirring up tons of trouble because Gentiles are getting saved. What do we do with all these Gentiles? How do we make all these Gentiles Jews so that they can be saved first? And this leads towards Jesus calling the first council of the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15. Jesus convenes Christian leaders. And instead of this doctrinal heresy of Jesus plus circumcision, changing the direction of the gospel, the Jerusalem council lets that heresy drive them to greater gospel clarity. They clarify their teaching on the fact that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then in Acts 15, tragedy strikes again. It's not death. It's not external persecution. It's the pain of two Christians that love each other, getting in a conflict and breaking up and going their separate ways. Paul and Barnabas, who were missionary partners and brothers, they have a heated disagreement and they break up. But instead of that resulting in the end of their mission, more churches are planted and strengthened. And then in Acts 16, Paul and a guy named Silas go to the city of Philippi. And in the city of Philippi, they cast a demon out of a little slave girl and it results in a riot in which they're arrested. They're thrown in jail, they're beaten. And at the end of their beating and imprisonment, instead of the church in Philippi being snuffed out, God moves in such a way where the jailer meets Jesus, the jailer's family meets Jesus, and a businesswoman named Lydia meets Jesus. And the result is that that little group of people becomes the core group of what will be the church at Philippi, which is one of the healthiest churches in the New Testament. Then in Acts chapter 17, a riot breaks out against Paul and Silas in Thessalonica, and yet Jewish people are saved and a great many of devout Greeks, and it says, and many of the leading women. Then we have Acts 17, Paul is chased out of Thessalonica. That results in the Bereans hearing the gospel. And then he's chased out of Berea, but that results in the Athenians hearing the gospel. In Acts 17, Paul is mocked by philosophers in Athens for preaching the resurrection. But even in the midst of mockery, Dionysus meets Jesus and a woman named Demarius and many others. And then in Acts 18, Paul is opposed and reviled by the Jewish people. And this results in him taking six months to go through a Jesus-centered Bible study for Gentiles. And then in Acts 18, we're introduced to a really interesting character, a guy named Apollos. And 
Apollos is fascinating because Apollos is this incredibly great communicator. He's this charismatic guy. He loves Jesus, but he's a little wonky doctrinally. He doesn't have doctrinal clarity and he's kind of getting Jesus right and kind of getting repentance and conversion wrong. And instead of his doctrinal lack of clarity resulting in heresy and the church ends and the mission stops, here's what happens. A husband and a wife team named Priscilla and Aquila are not threatened by the fact that he's really talented and kind of off on his doctrine. They sit him down and they explain the way of Jesus to him more clearly. And he receives in humility. And then he starts preaching the scriptures with great clarity, showing Jesus is the Christ. Then in Acts chapter 19, people in the synagogue are stubborn and unbelieving. So what does Paul do? He starts a Bible school in the hall of Tyrannus. And the result is that all Asia hears the word of God as he trains leaders for two years. And then in Acts chapter 19, Demetrius, who is a silversmith who built idols for the worship of Artemis and other gods. Demetrius is panicked because the number of people meeting Jesus means that the demand for his idols that he manufactures has dropped. And so Demetrius stirs up the city and there's this huge riot in the town. And the result is that instead of stopping the mission, Paul goes back to all the churches he planted to strengthen them and make sure that they're on track. And then in Acts 21 through 26, things get absolutely bonkers. Acts 21 through 26, Paul is arrested in the temple in Jerusalem and all hell breaks loose. There are assassins trying to kill him. Everybody wants his head. And the result is not that the gospel stops in Jerusalem. The result is that though Paul is arrested, people of influence start hearing the gospel like crazy. Felix, the governor, hears the gospel. His wife, Drusilla, hears the gospel. Roman leaders hear the gospel. King Agrippa hears the gospel and his wife Bernice hears the gospel. And then Paul appeals to Caesar. And this begins a lengthy journey all the way from Jerusalem to Rome that's gonna result in thousands of people getting the scripture that we need so badly to see Jesus. People are gonna be saved. Paul's gonna begin writing. And then we end... Paul's on a boat on the way to Rome as a prisoner on a prison ship. Now, that probably wasn't very pleasant. And to make matters worse, a huge storm blows in. The ship is going to be lost and people are fasting and they're crying out to their gods. And in the midst of the chaos, this prison ship goes down. Paul is spared by God's grace and the people on the ship are spared by God's grace and they end up marooned on an island called Malta. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a really bad day, but being in a prison ship and being shipwrecked would be bad enough. But Paul lands on Malta and he's hypothermic because of being in the ocean. And he goes to get some firewood to start a fire. And you know what happens? A viper, poisonous snake, bites his hand. It's like, what kind of day is this? I'm on a prison ship. I'm shipwrecked. I'm on some island that I don't know about. And now I'm getting bitten by a poisonous snake. But instead of that snake killing him, God spares his life. And this results in Paul getting to go and meet with the governor of the islands, the governor of Malta, who is sick with dysentery. Paul prays for him. He gets saved. And this results in an island-wide revival 
where literally almost every single person on the island that was sick gets healed by Jesus. Now, why are we doing this? We're doing this because what Luke wants you to see and what the Spirit of God wants you to see is that Jesus is a king with all power and all authority, but he's a king that's advancing his kingdom in the midst of opposition and resistance. And opposition and resistance, suffering and pain, and all the difficulties of this world are no match for the ongoing advance of Jesus and his gospel. His gospel continues to go forward. And though we live in this really weird, difficult moment where the kingdom is here and the kingdom's not yet, right? Like he's king and he has all authority and his kingdom's advancing, and yet his kingdom is not fully realized. Death is still here. Sickness is still here. Sin is still here. What Acts is all about is seeing Jesus as he rightly is and following Jesus on his mission to advance the gospel and not being surprised when following Jesus results in difficulties and tribulations. I worry greatly about our church because I don't know how much of my job, but as an elder, a huge portion of my job is to preach and teach and counsel and disciple in such a way that you're not surprised when fiery trials hit you. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.13. He says, don't be surprised when fiery trials hit you. Don't be surprised. Don't, Don't be taken off guard when the testing of your faith happens. And we're in this weird cultural moment where there's so many gospels that aren't even the gospel that teach if you just love Jesus and follow Jesus, everything will be easy. Jesus will be your... He'll be your escape from all these difficult things in this life. He'll get you out of every bit of pain. He'll get you out of every bit of conflict. Or as some teachers have wrongly taught that if you just have enough faith in Jesus, everything is always going to work out easy. And what Acts is about is the complete opposite of that. What Acts is about is that through many tribulations, you personally will enter into the kingdom of God. And through many tribulations as a follower of Jesus, you get invited into his mission so that more people can meet him. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, not because he didn't have enough faith, not because he didn't really know Jesus. This is the apostle Paul, guys. He gets stoned. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. Now listen to these words. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus's kingdom that advances, advances in the midst of tribulation and opposition. And this is true for you and me as personal followers of Jesus who have been saved by his grace and who want his kingdom to come in our lives and in our hearts and our relationships, his kingdom is gonna advance in you, but it's gonna advance in the midst of tribulations. 
And this is true for those of us that are trying to follow Jesus at work and follow Jesus at play and on the block. It's not always gonna be the blue, sweet, shiny days where his kingdom is advanced. It's gonna be in difficulty and in tribulation. I don't know many people that have gone really deep in Jesus without suffering. I don't know many great missional movements that have taken place without opposition. Pastor who had many people in Pakistan killed on the Easter bombings said to a friend of mine that's helping him on mission to plant churches in Pakistan, that his expectation is that Jesus is gonna use every bit of blood that was spilled to advance his kingdom in the nation of Pakistan, that more people will meet Jesus. Now, can we just get really honest about this? What Paul is saying is that his job as a leader in the church was to encourage and strengthen the saints of God to not lose sight of the big reality of who Jesus is and to not grow faint when you go through tribulations. Because it's in those tribulations that you see Christ and you follow Christ and you're changed by Christ. We have to bury a young man that died last week that loved Jesus and his family loved Jesus. Today, I have to go visit a man who's a young man who loves Jesus and he has colon cancer and it's spread to his whole body and he's sick. What I want for us as a church is not to have an entertainment-driven experience when we gather. I want us to be people that have faith. And what that means is that you see Jesus rightly, that he's king and he's Lord and he loves you. And he's better than everything else. And he's not out of control. And the universe is not out of control. His name is above every other name. And the guarantee is that in this life, you will enter his kingdom through many tribulations. That the testing of your faith will happen. So much of my job is just to prepare you for the day that's coming for everybody in this room that's a day of pain and loss. To prepare you to die well, to die in faith. What I want for us as a church is to realize that we want to follow Jesus out there on mission to see his kingdom expand so more people meet him and more evil is stopped. And that happens with opposition, but we also want to follow Jesus in here and have his kingdom take root in us. For some of you, that tribulation right now is that the kingdom of God is trying to break into your marriage and it feels like tribulation It doesn't feel like all the dreams that you had for your marriage. It doesn't feel like the romantic picture of marriage in America. It feels like difficulty. It feels like death. For some of you, that's where you are financially. For some of you, you're sick. And what's crazy about Acts is that there's no formula. Some people get miraculously healed. Isn't it crazy that James gets murdered in the same context that Peter gets miraculously delivered from prison. Like, go figure. And the point of all that is to say, it's not a formula. It's about faith in Jesus. And whether Jesus rescues you miraculously out of tribulation, or Jesus takes you through tribulation, or Jesus delivers you unto himself through death, his kingdom advances in difficult and dark places. And we need to be people that hold on to him and look to him and trust him and love him. And to those of you that are non-Christians in the room, what I would say to you is that we're not gonna give you a fake Jesus that can't save you. 
I don't want to preach to you Jesus, who is some version of Santa Claus in the skies that lives to fetch you all the things that you need so that you can continue to build a kingdom of self that's going to end up rotting in a landfill. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to see the real Jesus because he's glorious and he loves you and he died for you and he's king of kings and he's Lord of lords and he's inviting you to follow him, guaranteeing you up front that there'll be suffering and difficulty along the way, but that every bit, every bit of it's worth it to be a part of his kingdom, to see him, to know him.